Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Hello, Sound and Vision listeners. I don't often do this, but I wanted to ask for your support up top. If you're a fan of the show, if you could take a minute or two and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to this on, it would really mean a lot. Feedback is great, and your input helps put the podcast on the map of other people who may be interested in hearing directly from artists. As always, thanks so much for your support. In other news, I've curated a show that will open at Miles McHenry Gallery November 19th called Sound and Color. Yes, reference intended. The work in the show is related to sound and or music, and it will feature some past podcast guests from Jenna Gribben, Tahiba Shabazz, Justin Liam O'Brien, to Carl Funk, and many others. Please check it out if you can when it opens, and be on the lookout for a digital catalog to see the work through Miles McHenry Gallery's website in time for the show. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Born and raised in New York City, Guy Richard Smith is known for his paintings, video installations, musicals, and performances exploring the themes of narcissism, desire, power, and failure. Using pop cultural forms such as stand-up comedy, pop music, comic books, New York Times, front pages, and even television sitcoms, he has conveyed a sharply observant cultural and political message with a philosophical observations and humor. Writing in the New York Times in 2013, Roberta Smith called his work a tour de force that showcases his considerable talents for satire, stand-up, endurance art, and painting. His work's been seen at Hall Walls Buffalo, Spring Break Art Show in New York, Charlie James Gallery in Los Angeles, the Pompidou Center in Paris, and in Biennials in Havana, Valencia, and Arco Madrid in 2008, in Dublin Contemporary in 2011. Solo exhibitions include Pierogi Gallery, Schroeder Romero and Shredder in New York, Fred London Limited in London, Nausea 2, Premier Series, Museum of Modern Art in New York, QED in Los Angeles, and he's received awards including the Penny McCall Foundation Award in 2004 and the Foundation for Contemporary Art Grant in 2016. In 2016, he completed a five-episode, three-camera sitcom called The Gross Mallerman Show with legendary director Joshua White. And he began a suite of paintings on paper called A Mountain of Skulls and Not One I Recognize. A monograph of the project was published this month by Trella and can be purchased at amountainofskulls.com or at many bookstores and museums around the city. I spoke with Guy about the state of our world, making art in many ways, getting around town via bike, his recent book, and much more. Here's our conversation. So this is a great and weird and interesting window to talk to you because we're right. We're in the in the unknown. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is this is a great way to not think about that for an hour or so. (laughs) Sorry, as I bring it up from the top. Hey, how about that election? (laughs) Oh, man. Last night, for some reason, I had myself lulled into like a it's it's going to be great. It's going to it's working out. And went right. went to sleep and slept a solid air, but like probably only because the night before, 
I had had this kind of like fitful hour of sleep between like that feeling in your chest and that every time I think about it, the like the bottom dropping out of my stomach, it was crazy. Yeah. And it's a roller coaster. It, and in the end, just like where, which, whichever way it goes, like just having like being so disappointed in American people. <laughs> Yeah, I know that's the I, I I've been seeing when I I'm trying to not do too much phone and yeah. you know and I don't have TV I just use the internet yeah. to watch whatever I watch so I'm trying to lay off but it's hard and you know there's some of the people who are posting like as soon as it looked like maybe there was a possibility that things could turn yeah um, the thing of like well it's still depressing that half the country is, you know, or the countries have split. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, but I'm like, yeah, but still, I still want to win this. No, thing. totally. Totally. And it'll make, I mean, just for that guy to shut up for the next four years. Well, even the last 24 hours has been kind of surreal. Cause you haven't been hearing that voice all the time. Right. And, you know, I watch a lot of like comedy shows and stuff where they're doing the voice. It's like that voice, man. It's just, oh. it's brutal. I mean, are you feeling like you're, you're able to be, productive in the midst of you know this this week specifically or well i honestly like um only in as much so i i started doing this thing with the book where i was um because you can't do a book signing and i wanted everyone to know about the book and like while it is in you know it's at ps1 and uh uh, like mass and like places but if you really want to sell books uh i i started delivering them like, deli- yeah. like bike, like on, on my bike and going up to like Washington Heights, going out to Red Hook. And this week in particular, just like the fact that I needed both my hands to steer and I couldn't doom scroll was like really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just kept, and exercise. Yeah. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was exercise. It's the weather's gone beautiful. And, um, yeah. and, uh, and I was doing like this kind of, I was doing something and it was, I needed to do it. It was a good thing to be doing, but it didn't take any brain power because I can't concentrate. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so th- th- that's been totally saving me. Now, when you say, um, and you should talk about the book, but when you say that you're delivering it, are you taking it to stores, individual, like how, what, no, so like, um, the scope? I, you know, basically this is one of those things where like, it, if it wasn't as much as I, I distrust social media, um, if it wasn't for Instagram, um, I, I, you know, basically like posts every delivery on, I, I, I put six or eight books in my, I have, uh, you know, uh, bike, bike bags and, uh, I ride around deliver. Everyone's home now, you know, no one's working outside of the home. So like they can take 10 minutes out. I, uh, I sign it. We do some photos. Um, it's, it's, I've seen some great old friends that I hadn't seen in a while. Everyone's happy to see somebody. Um, and, uh, um, but it's, yeah, it's for personal, like personal, uh, it's single, like, you know, just people buying them. There's like a link via, you can get through my bio on, on Instagram and, um, uh, yeah. And so they just, they did do that. And then there's a little comment, like, do you want it delivered? Do you want it sent? Blah, blah, blah. That's pretty cool. Like the hand delivery. Yeah. It got, they got picked up in, uh, uh, what are the, one of the big book um, magazines about like because they're all desk they no one can figure out how you sell a book right now um, besides you know, Amazon um, but Amazon takes like 55% of it right off the top so uh, um, 
so it's been, it's, it's, it's been like, it was the only way I could figure out to do it. And I, I love biking. Um, uh, I love being around the city. Uh, and it gave me an excuse to go to places I wouldn't otherwise ride, you know? Right. Yeah. So, well, being a born and raised in New York City, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, have you always been a biker and biking I have. Around? I have. Yeah. I was partly raised in the Netherlands where biking is just this kind of like, Oh thing yeah. You, Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this great kind of freedom you get as a kid. I'm sorry. There's some car alarm going outside. No, that's the uh, the car alarm track. I just added okay, the sound yeah, effects for this. Yeah. It's real We're New York. We're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't foleyed. I have a whole a bunch of drops here. I have a garbage truck. I have a screaming neighbor. The whole bit. Wow. <laughs> it adds color. Here we are with Brian in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess you you know I'm. A, it's funny because I drive a lot because our my extended family lives in Jersey in suburban New Jersey uh-huh. so we we're just always driving out there and visiting and um so I and I when I teach I drive so I've just become a driver you yeah. know and and when my family comes and visits they're like how do you drive in the city because the people compared to back home the people yeah. drive aggressively to say the least they drive and, uh, aggressively I, here or in, yeah oh, yeah really? no in New York yeah I mean people are pretty aggressive here so compared to some you know out in the middle of nowhere right and uh and i say you just acclimate to it you know you just sort of adjust i like driving here i mean i don't like drive i don't like traffic uh which is i remember you know you know when you're sitting in traffic <clears throat> trying to go over the williamsburg bridge and like some cyclist goes like oh yeah the yeah. and um uh i was I, and i always envy that person and i and one of the great things about cycling is you really you never are stuck in traffic right um uh, but I like having been a, a late because of I'm uh, was raised in New York I only learned to drive at like 33 and oh, wow. it was yeah. really I liked New York driving because it was so slow yeah. and you know you were never like it freaked me out to go above like 60 anywhere right, um, right. yeah you're not doing that in the city yeah I know so you're just kind of like you know, and, and you do have to be kind of aggressive in terms of like, I'm taking this turn. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I like that. It gets like deeper in Brooklyn. It gets, I think, more aggressive where there's like sort of like uh, it's kind of more. It's a little it's wilder. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, well, the, so the balance between um well, I haven't spent much time there, but I mean, being between, you know, New York and then spending time, like time in the Netherlands and you, did, did you live in Germany a little bit too? I, yeah, I moved to Berlin in 90. Uh, oh, wow. That's like Berlin on the, before. Uh, it was, uh, it was right after. It was right after. And I lived in a squad in East Berlin for a year. Uh, Wait, right after? Right after the wall, right after the wall. Oh, no. Out. Yeah, yeah. I meant before it became like a sort of art. Like yes, a place where people absolutely. were going to sort of like get cheap studios and all right, that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So that's a different dynamic. I mean, was you, what was your upbringing, you know, traditional in the sense of like a New York family or like, did you feel like, were you traveling a lot more than that or how do you feel? Well, um, both my parents were academics and my dad had kids in the Netherlands. So as soon as this, their school year ended, we were get on a plane and go there. Um, 
So it was like a big chunk of my year. I mean, three months of my year was spent there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was fascinating because it was so, you know, it's in terms of as cultures go, it's not terribly different. Um, but you could, you were getting the other side. And, and frankly, also like, I mean, I, I uh, the summers there, at least when I was a kid, were awful. They were uh, rainy and cloudy. And we would be trapped in this house watching the rain hit the windows. And I kind <laughs> of credit that for me becoming an artist. Because also, the other thing the Netherlands had was only, they only had two channels of television. And they would start at six every day, uh, except Wednesdays. Uh, where they would start at like two and you get like two hours of kids programs and then it would go off again and then come back on at six. <laughs> and, um, and you'd watch anything that came on because you were desperate. Yeah. But you had to just do shit. Uh, right. And you couldn't really, you know, going outside what was often an option and you'd go outside and you'd bike around and you'd have a lot of freedom. But, uh, but a lot of the time you were just sitting inside so you had to kind of come up with stuff. The old uh, bad weather promotes creativity. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, the stories of a friend who was close with the guys from the Royal Art Lodge, you know, talking about there was nothing. I mean, it was so snowy in Canada and so cold where they were. They just huddled inside and made artwork all the time. Yeah. You, know, you hear those stories of people who just are in a place where there's either not much to do or the weather's not kind and you just stay in and kind of get stuff done, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've always loved that sort of the forced contemplative period that the Northeast grants. Um, I don't know how you... I mean, I know that California has seasons. I know that uh, they, it's, their own, it's its own rhythm. But uh, I, I personally really enjoy, like, the, also when you see a beautiful day like today, where you like, I'm going to go outside today. Uh, I'm going to do something with today. Uh, I mean, as an artist, you also get to do that. Not everyone can take advantage of it. But... Um, um, to me, that's like it changes my mood entirely. It changes my, uh, my, my the way I'm going to work that day. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if you like in say Southern California or Hawaii or somewhere like that, where the weather's pretty nice all the time. If you're just like okay, like the, ch the charm of a, a beautiful day wears off, and you're just totally. like I'm just going to work in the studio. <clears> this, this totally, is, yeah. You know. And I always figured like depression in L.A. must be the worst fucking thing in the world. Oh yeah. <laughs> like walking out on that and being like, you know, like bummed out. Yeah. Whereas to me, it, yeah. But even, yeah, at the end of every summer, you're kind of sick of warm weather and you want some cold weather. Right. And that's what I, I wonder if in climates where it doesn't change like that. Remember when it was getting close to spring in school, like when you were in grade school or high school and then it started getting warm and you you kind of fantasize about those nice days. And once in a while you would get a day off of school or even in college where they would like let you out of class early because it was so beautiful out and everyone was so excited about that spring weather and it being warm enough to go outside without freezing. Yeah. You know, it's such a, a charge, that kind of like excitement. Yeah, you know? oh, totally. The way like that, um, even in New York, like you'd smell things in the air, you know, like that garbage. The light. <laughs> well, no, not yet. That's in August. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh man, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the garbage sauna, <laughs> right? Exactly. But yeah, just like weird, like green, greenness in the air, and it would just fucking freak you out. You'd just yeah, buzz totally. off of it. 
Yeah, it's 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 um, I don't know. There's something generative about that. Like you feel like you want to create in moments like I, that. I think so. I think so. Or at least I do. You know, I'm, I'm sure that every everyone's figured out different ways to work, but um, uh, but I I'm thankful for for weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, being stuck in there and like you finding your creative. Uh, kind of itch you know to scratch when did it become more something more to where you're like okay well I'd like to go to art school or I think I'm gonna want to do something like this well I uh uh I it was really like one of those things where it was the only thing I was good at and um I started going to like these Saturday morning classes at the Met uh when I was like nine and um I still get chills in that museum because I know every corner even when they change the, like uh, there's certain things I just I, I, mean, I draw and I think I still have some of the drawings of certain sculptures that I drew, sat and drew and then I started going to at 10 I started going to um, the Art Students League so it was pretty early on that I was like I remember I, I, I did a drawing based on this one like, it was the only the only class in school where anyone wanted to partner with me ever it was like we're gonna do an art project, <laughs> it's the art stuff. Yeah, and that was the only, and and it immediately became my like, how do I get popular? This is this is the this is the way I'm gonna get popular. Um, so it just seemed. I mean, well, that's a, uh, also an advantage of, you know, growing up in New York is that you're around institutions and you're you're in an environment where creativity is kind of, you know, a, a major part of the culture of the city and of the people, you know, so it's not quite so foreign right? as if you, you know, grow up in Arkansas in the middle of like, you know, a farm or something and people... You yeah, say, oh, I, I had it so easy for my particular uh, it, uh, for my particular, like for my particular desires, I was in I was exactly where I wanted to be. The only big issue was like, how do I get below 14th street? Oh, you know, yeah. that was like the, cause I was on 120th street in Morningside Heights, which was its own, you know, beacon of creativity and, and culture. But for what I was interested in, it was all under 14th street. And, um, I remember meeting like at the art students league. And I just found out actually that the teacher that I had on Saturday mornings, Mr. Michael Pelletieri is still teaching there. Um, and he must be in his 80s. But you meet these other kids who are interested in that. And uh, a couple of them lived below 14th Street in like in crazy real artist lofts with their parents. And so I got to go see those places. And it was always like just blew my mind. Um, and then we walk up and down 8th Street uh, and then creep over East, which was like terrifying for a 12, 13 year old. Um um, yeah, and then I was taking the bus home and I had my, like, you know, those, those 18 by 26 portfolios and, um, at 120th street, just as I was getting off, this girl was like, you go to music and art, um, which is what LaGuardia was called at the time. And I was like, no. Uh, and I got off and I went home and I asked my mom what music and art was. She was like, it's an arts high school. So, and I was getting kicked, basically getting kicked out of my school at that time for being a crappy student and so I tried out for that uh and got in and so that so like it was really it was a straight line um I've never been I can't really remember a time where I didn't 
want to be an artist or didn't fetishize what it was to be an artist or didn't kind of fantasize about um, the squalor of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, the, the thing I, I wonder as someone who grew up outside of New York, you know, in a smaller town and then coming to New York, it's like, oh, well, this is the place where all this stuff's happening. And you, you kind of build it up in your mind over the years of like when you're building up to moving to the city to do this and to, you know, to want to make work and live here and be in that environment. But I imagine if you're in it the whole time, I don't know if it has, if it would have the same sort of mystique and splendor and, you know, and, because as an artist who's been here for over 20 years working and being in the sort of art world, quote unquote, of just, you know, showing and, and meeting people, yeah. and doing stuff, you, after a while you're kind of, when you first get here or you first enter into it, there is this unknown element and it's really exciting. And then as you do it, over a while you realize that oh well it's really what you're doing in the studio all the other stuff is great yeah and and awful sometimes too <clears throat> but it and it, it loses the the mystique or charm of it and you realize it's a business and the the mystique and charm of it is really like you know your friendships with other artists and what's going on in the studio and all that but it, it kind of like shrinks the grandeur of it i'm sure the same thing happens to people at hollywood when they go to hollywood oh it's going to be right you know the lights and the the you know, and then they get there and they do it and they're like, oh, okay, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think also like at a certain point, you know, all my, for the last 35 years, all my friends are people who are creative. So cre being creative doesn't seem, um, isn't this weird thing anymore, you know? Uh, uh, and that you get kind of, it, it, you take it for granted. I, I remember like, you know, when I've worked in theater stuff or when I've shot, like, shot video work and someone will, I'll ask someone to act and they can't. And it's just not something they're comfortable doing. And I don't physically, like, I don't corporally understand that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean you can't? And then like, yeah, it's, it's in, like, I don't get that there are people who are not, uh, ready to jump in at all times on some kind of crazy scheme. Um, and that's not to criticize, it sounds like it is, but uh, it's just like a funny thing. Like my brain is at a, been at a place for a long enough or surrounded by other people who are like down um, that it's just not very special anymore. And, that, and there's, a, there's a downside to that too, because it is like, I, I really miss that total fantasy of what it was going to be like yeah i wonder if the conversely like when you go out into rural areas and you're like i just can't throw a baseball and people are like what do you oh, mean? totally totally <laughs> well you can't catch a football yeah you oh know? I, I i disappoint i like i amaze people constantly with my you know like i don't know anything about cars um <laughs> i'm not i i i am you know, like people be like, do you see the game? And I'm like, I, I, <laughs> the game you're speaking of is. Uh, right. Um, uh, yeah, it's like two worlds sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Depending on, you know, how far on the spectrum you are, I guess. I, right. You know what I mean? Of, of like, and, and I always think about, you know, having a kid in the city and thinking about growing up here. It's, I would, you know, the stimulus and the sort of... Um, the 
well, not not so much these days is because we can't go out that much. But, you know, all the access to all this culture and all these things, it's so right. amazing. It's like, I wonder if it, in a way, it just like spoils, spoils it because it's like, what are you going to be dazzled by? If, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'll t- like, all this honestly, stuff? like every time I, uh, and I haven't traveled in a while, but would, uh, I've never not once been amazed by the skyline um, and looked at it and just gone like, holy crap, and I get to live here. Um, I'm always happy with the amount of interesting people my kids meet, even more so than when I was a kid, because there was still, like, it was a very segmented city. Um, And it wasn't really until high school that I was meeting kids who were not, whose parents weren't also professors or whose, like, uh, um, and they're they're much more engaged with the city than I was. Right. Um, yeah, no, I think it's an amazing place. I mean, well, and in growing up, you, when did music fold into the whole equation? Because that's a big part of your life too. You know, yeah. so when uh, did that start just as early or? Uh, not just as early. Cause I was a, I was a terrible, I couldn't learn an instrument. I tried violin. Um, I remember a recorder. I, faked it and the teacher could figure it out that I was just totally faking my fingering and <laughs> just singing into it just kind of like, do, 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 do. <laughs> like hoping that the sound of the other recorders would like drown oh, out my yeah, yeah. blare and um uh and then I remember seeing and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this but I think I was like 11 or 12 and I saw a video for Iran from the flock of seagulls and it was like this crazy you know this guy who's like you can't he had makeup on and I was just, you know, people of like seven or eight years older than me are like, talk about how that, that first time they saw Bowie. And I wish it was that story, but it was the first right. time I saw the flock, it of was seagulls. flock of seagulls. And I was just like, he's singing about feelings and he's so weird. And I feel like we have a connection. And, uh, and I was like, I've, I've, I have to make music. Um, and so when I got to LaGuardia, uh, it was this, you know, I have to say New York culture at the time was just, I, I, I may be peaking, I, that, that's not true, but it was like an incredible moment. It was booming. Yeah, yeah. it was like 1984. And um, within like three months of being at LaGuardia, I, I was in a band and we were playing CBGBs. Yeah. And it was it was like, you know, their, their amateur night, but then we got a real gig later and we were terrible, but it was this is punk stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was called Addictive Manifesto, and um, and uh, you know, it's it's embarrassing to listen to back. I'm like the first stuff I'm faking a British accent. <laughs> and, um, uh, but some of the people in the band, like, are still friends. And Tom Bojour, who was our guitarist, ended up being the, like the editor of Revolver. And, uh, or like the editor-in-chief, I think. And um, uh, then at our first gig, uh, uh, one of the dudes from Not A Surf, like that was the first time he had seen someone our age have a band and it inspired nice. him to like, <laughs> so it's just like weird New York stuff like that. Um, yeah. But um, uh, yeah, and then like that band kind of dwindled out and I, started in another band 
And then by the time I was like, I think 17, I was more established in music. Like I knew other musicians and uh, uh, some of the New York musicians I admired from that particular scene. And I started this band, Okrana, and we would play around a lot, opened up for the Headcoats and... Um, a lot of the the bands of that period like the dark wave stuff that was going on in like 86 87 played uh cb several times lismar lounge which was a great place um uh tramps um oh man i haven't heard that in a long time yeah yeah tramps <clears throat> and uh yeah and i remember we even had like a record deal that fell apart um but uh and it was, I was always sort of, I was always the lead singer and I was always generally kind of like the leader of the band, mostly because <clears throat> the, like these kids hated each other. And so I would kind of be the intermediary lying right. to each one of them about that the other person didn't hate them. And thankfully <laughs> none of them were talking to each other. And, uh, and finally it just like, they all got into a fight and it fell apart. Um, and I wasn't in bands for a few years because I really didn't miss that part of it um, until Maxi Gow and Play Colt in like the late 90s. Yeah. Which again was people like uh, I started with friends of mine um, from high school. And, uh, uh, and it was really, I only did it to, uh, I was making these strange videos and rock operas. Uh, one of them was called the Ballad of Bad Orpheus. That was the first one, and I needed a band to play the songs. Um, uh, and John Stanier from Hel Helmet at the time uh, was was our drummer, and uh, yeah, and it was really fun. And I'd forgotten how much fun music making was, and it's a great way to get you out of like the studio and the, into that collaborative mindset. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it was it housed in um, just music like as a separate sort of thing? But it seems like you were bringing music into a performative element of some of the other work you were doing. So did you think of it purely as like a, a is this a separate thing? This is a band I'm in. We're playing music, or did you think it as just an extension of your studio practice? It started off as a, uh, an extension of the studio practice, in as much as so like I. In the early, late 90s, uh, I had a show at Roebling Hall uh, of this character I'd developed called Gross Mollerman. And it was, he was like this totally uh, um, vile uh, painter, male painter. And, he, and, uh, um, and I got to be known as, and he's doing stand-up. And I got to be known as like, oh, the stand-up artist. Like he always, and, and I was like I gotta get out of that because I'm gonna get stuck in this like people were asking me to to perform as this guy and I didn't want to become Neil Hamburger essentially which is where it was I felt it was headed so I was like I need to I need to develop another character he's a different character and let's say he's a he's a lead singer because I had been a lead singer and I had and I'd been a, a lead singer young so I really understood I felt I understood the kind of psychology of uh, that and they are particular thing um and uh so i started writing these these songs um and the, uh, yeah so I, I 
they were first like one-offs that I would sh show little videos of. And, he, um, and then I developed him into a, like a, he'd be a character in a, a rock opera. So in one rock opera, he was this, uh, uh, it was loosely based on Carell, um, this kind of lascivious sea captain. And in another one, he was this um, porn star who was crippled with doubt. Uh, it was called Nausea too. Um, and by that point, I, that premiered at MoMA. Uh, so it was really, you know, I, I had some, some push behind it. And for the performance at MoMA, I had to really put together a band. Uh, um, and so I found a, a new, and a, and a number of the people were in bands that were kind of taking off and so they couldn't play with me. So I really, I put together a band and it was fun and it was a real rock band. Um, and so from that moment on, actually, after Nausea 2, we kind of developed into a real rock band, touring, um, we toured Europe twice. Um, uh, we had a kind of a, uh, yeah, we, we had a following and it was, it was like we would play and we would rock and the other bands would be like, you guys rocked and like the audience would be dancing. And, uh, um, we got in, we were like open up for the Scissor Sisters and it was like this kind of, it was very performative. Uh, I would never s finish the gig without being like totally drenched in sweat. Um, it was very much about like not leaving anything up on, just just really going for it. And it was, it was interesting as a, as a different corporal experience than, you know, generally like studio work is. And I wanted it to be a very live thing and not some artist with his computer, um, like making cool tracks, but this was supposed to be like a, a real live rock experience. Right. Yeah. And it's such a different way of connecting. Right. Cause like totally. when I used to play music, you know, that live experience when you're done with it, there's such an energy to that. Oh and it's God. so, it's such a different creative process. I mean, there's the instant collaboration with whoever you're playing with, but there's also that feeling that you're just connecting with the crowd and like the music is hitting them and they're experiencing it and then it's over. Yep, totally. But and it's different because it's performative in a way, but it's it's performative through sound as opposed to strictly performative through, you know, visuals. Right. So it it, it holds a different kind of unexplained um, resonance with the the viewer and, and whoever's experiencing it but it, and it's inexplicable in a way and kind of in a way a lot of artwork is when you look at it but we try our best to you know to shelve it and to, to explain it and to but I think with music it's even more visceral and even more kind of um, I don't know direct it's like a more direct connection with the experience which yeah. then moving back to, I, I would imagine, like for me, it was the studio stuff was so different than, it was just two different things, you know, and uh, they didn't really blur that much. And, um, but for you, it seems like that, you know, it, it did blur because you were doing performative stuff. So, right. you know, I <clears> guess <throat> that kept the energy going in the studio too, I suppose. It did. There was a period of time though, at, towards the end where I was, I was just overextended. And yeah. trying to write Burning songs because I was the primary songwriter, and trying uh, and and then also bands, man, like uh, trying to manage. At that point, we were all in our late thirties, and trying to manage people's life and and uh, 
trying to manage also something that was essentially a an extension of my work and so the other guys weren't getting the same uh nutrition from it do you know what i mean right yeah totally um i think it only works like bands at that stage it can only work if they're if everyone's doing really well from the band. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I think it's still really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like being in vans or being in I on tour and stuff is really like a young person's game. Like if you're like forty four years old and you're like traveling around on tour, you're going to be so uh, generally a lot of people are going to be so much more fussy and grumpy about like how they're doing and like. You know, when you're young, you don't care. It's like, yeah. this is amazing. Yeah, 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 Let's yeah. just go rock out and, you know, meet people. And yeah. as you get older, you get, you kind of want a little more comfort in your life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't have those big tour buses or flying around on planes and you're in the back of a van or a pickup, I can imagine that would get. Yeah. Older. And if you're it not the, like, me. if you're not the people that like, okay, who's going to do the interview today? Oh, it's going to be me. Cause right. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, and they just like, okay, I'm, uh, Yeah. And yeah, and I remember, you know, they had marriages and it was like, dude, we're going to be like for a week in England. uh, And you better have that. There was a lot of there was a lot of pressure on me to make sure that we had a show booked every day and that there was no downtime because when there was downtime, there was always trouble. Right. Right. And uh, it just got it just got exhausted. And, and, you know, and the, the other thing I was always kind of like banking on was that at some point there'd be money and the money would get spread around and everyone would kind of be like, okay, well, at least I'm getting paid decently for this. Yeah. But that just didn't really happen. Uh, so, so yeah. So, it, and it, in the end, it like, I think it kind of had run its course. I miss it a lot, but I, I don't miss the pressure of like the organization and the, um, right. uh, and the managing personalities the bureaucracy of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Because it, especially because when you're playing music, it's that moment is so quick. Like the moment you're on stage, oh, totally. and you're actually it's such a small percentage of everything else yeah. that you're doing. Whereas an artist in your studio, a, you get to decide when you go to the studio and how long you're going to work and b the performative element of like going to an opening or something is so small compared to the actual performative of doing the right. thing, which is really, hopefully, ideally for most people is what it's really all about. You know what I mean? So as an artist in the studio, you're spending more time in that zone and less time on like, you know, the fussing about the show and like all that other stuff. Yeah. And, it's, and another thing is like when you do, when you finish a painting, the end result is there. When you, when you're out of a rehearsal, uh, you know, or you were, you're working on an album there's so much or uh similarly like when i've done video work you spend so much time on the production aspect of it never seeing the end result until the very end and it can be um uh like at the end of every day i can have something that i'm happy with and i've got i've gone i've seen from beginning to end um but uh for instance like four years ago when I did this sitcom from the beginning of like trying to get the actors together, trying to get funding for it, uh, building a set, getting a, uh, and then shooting them and then getting like post-production done. And it was, it was two years, uh, 
of work. And it was it was awesome, but it's not like going home and making a drawing and or, right. or a painting and not having to deal with anyone, not having to pick up the phone. Yeah, that's such a hard that's such a it's a huge difference. I think for people who do stuff like that, who work in film or work on massive collaborative projects, I think they are probably just feed off of that energy and don't want to do something necessarily right away. They want to take their time and like build towards something. Right. And also the one saving grace of all that, if you're okay with it, is that you do have other people working on things. It's not just totally. everything is you, you know, which uh, can be refreshing, but it takes a certain person to to give that up you know it's weird because I, I'll do projects like I'll collaborate with musicians on a video or I'll do like animation projects where I'll collaborate but when it comes to like my studio and making my work that I'm physically making no one like I never want a single person in there right touching anything or doing anything so it's like I'm partially just never any assistance never that and then the other side is I love collaborating yeah, you know, but it, it's it's almost like a separation of church and state. To- <clears throat> I I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, uh, and I'm not like I'm not sure. How, like collaborating is is difficult because when you're dealing with someone else's ideas, and uh, and they you know if they have a, a decent ego, then it can get very touchy. Touchy. Um, um, and so sometimes, like when I when I do those things, like I let go maybe a little too much because I'm like I can't argue with this person, or I, I uh, like it's it becomes their project, and I'm like helping them or giving my it's I don't know it's something I need to learn how to do because you can it's it uh, there's a lot of benefits to kind of learning to um, I, I remember when I was working. On the Gross Mollerman Show, which is this sitcom about that character that I developed in the '90s, and um, I started working with this guy Joshua White, and I don't know if you know who he is, but he um, he basically well he he did the psychedelic light shows for the Fillmore East in the '60s '67. Uh, did it for Woodstock. He's the guy who developed the whole um, uh, at Woodstock. He realized like no one wants to be in these small venues anymore. It used to be that like the Who would come to town and do five nights at the Fillmore to promote uh, Tommy and there weren't and then they played um, Woodstock and you realize you could get 40,000 people the sound was terrible but no one cared it was about the whole experience so he developed the video like where you 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 video uh, project the video of the people he did it for Led Zeppelin did it for all these people and then ended up being in like rock production did in concert for a CBS or ABC and ended up like finally directed like Seinfeld and a number of sitcoms uh, and so he helped me on this and he was so he was just like a genius and knew everything and like collaborating him with him was like I was the weak link <laughs> you know it was just you know, every day you were just bringing in this you know, any idea that he would suggest was like oh of course that's what we should do and that was fun that was like really um, uh energizing and I like just learned so much um, uh, but then you can also I've also you know when you're dealing with also with comedy like uh, people will be people think they're funny and I, I have very particular ideas of what I think and so you like deal with a, a direct another director who's like we should do this 
and you're just horrified at what they think is funny. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, uh, um, and that can be a very frustrating collaboration and can end very poorly as it has. Um, well, it's funny, you were get, before you mentioned that, I was going to say that every time I've, I mean, it's, it's fortunate and I'm choosing these projects in a way, you know, but every time I collaborate with someone, I just pick people who are really great at what they yeah, do yeah, yeah, and yeah, that yeah. I'm not good at that sort of thing. You know what yeah. I mean? So then it's just like amazing yeah. because you don't feel like I'm not collaborating with other painters because right. I feel like that would be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> That's not what I want. You know, like it would be that all the time. It's like, yeah, I don't know if I would do it that way. Yeah. But when it comes to like animation or music or things that are not something that I feel like I want to have that complete control of and I feel like these other people are going to bring something great to it it it's great right like I'll, I'll, they'll, it's almost like you know it's it's like opening a gift like you send something off you're working on something they send it back and you're like oh my gosh you did that from this you know it's amazing right 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 but right, if right. you're a big fans of them it really helps out because you know in a way that you're kind of curating the way that the collaboration is going to go which I think is smart yeah yeah. And it, but it's not easy, you know, especially I think in other mediums. Like if you start working in film and TV and video stuff, you know, you're going to be working with some people that you don't know or haven't worked with before. And I'm sure the, you know, the vision could be different. So. Yeah. And then they, they often have it, like as also in, in music and stuff, when you're, you're dealing with people who can, who can do something that you just can't fucking do. You, yeah. You can bang away at it, but they, they'll, they'll, um, you know, I don't know how to run a decent uh, board. I can't. Yeah. I don't have an ear for it. I don't have the technological skill. You know, right? Um, and I'm too close to the project, so like that. You know, their ear, stuff like that. And we, yeah, I mean, working with. <laughs> working, I think I think the trick to collaboration is working with someone who's very good at what they do. <laughs> Yeah. Very good and much better than we are. Whatever exactly. we're doing. It's like, hey, this is amazing. Exactly. I think we've cracked the code of collaboration. There you go, everyone. Free advice. Exactly. <laughs> Just find someone incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Who's also willing to maybe do it for trait or like, you right. know, not necessarily having to pay a fortune and right. they just really like what you do too. That's always important too, is like working with people who have like, a vested interest in what you're doing. Like if they feel like, Oh, well, I really like what you're doing. I really like what you're doing. It's probably going to work out. Yeah. Whereas if you reach out to someone who could maybe care less on what you're doing, right. It might not, it might not go so well. And also, yeah. And there's also a lot of people in the arts that do something that no, no one can do, but isn't fun and no one wants to do it. Like the poor yeah. sound guy who <clears throat> most anyone ever is like, if something sounds good, everyone's like, no one says that it sounds good. You know, they only right. mention sound if it's fucked up. <laughs> so, right, right. so like, um, yeah. So the, the poor sound guy at every, every, every show who just like is angry or the, uh, um, uh, yeah. And those people you like, there's no way to do a fucking trade cause they don't do it for fun. Right. <laughs> they're not, they're not getting anything out do of it. And- you never, uh, you never hear about an amazing gaffer. Oh know? God, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure there's some. I'm sure you're like, oh well, no, we got to get Tom. Tom's the yeah. only guy. I'm gonna have gaff him, gaff on my movie. He, um, he's he's the gaffer. The gaffer. <laughs> he's the go-to gaffer. <laughs> there's no awards for a gaffer. <laughs> 
So, well, what are you like these days? What have you been working? I mean, you got the book. How did that come about? Well, so back connecting to the Gross Mollerman show, which was this five episode sitcom, when I was like trapped in post production, where I was dealing with like a, a Foley, like them doing the sound, color correct. Uh, which like color correction? No one wants to fucking do that for free. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound it doesn't um, sound good. Um, it was taking forever, and I started this series that was of that was based on well, two things. I've I've always had an issue with people who do the same work over and over and over again. Um, at the same time, I've had a fascination with people who do the same work over and over again because I feel that I kind of tend to touch things superficially or that if, if I was to criticize myself, it would be that I kind of jump around and I don't really get into the meat of stuff. Um, and I had this idea from when I was a student in Amsterdam and the Velvet Curtain had come down. Velvet, the Velvet Revolution had happened in Czechoslovakia and we all basically got on a bus and went to Prague. And uh, we did this day trip to a place called Kutnohora that has this ossuary, which is like a, you know, one of those bone uh, churches. And it had this insane Baroque bone church where they did the bunting in bone, or there's a couple photographs of it in the book. Uh, there's an altar made out of bones. Um, and there were just all these skulls everywhere, uh, like pyramids of skulls. <clears throat> and I remember just going like looking at them and like skulls are so, you know, they're the symbol, they're potent, but they're also, they don't give you much. And I was, uh, I kind of made, turned one into the baker in kind of a weird effort to empathize with the fact that there's a skull of somebody who had been alive, just like us, had all the kind of similar traits that we do, only had died in the plague. And, uh, and in doing so, I kind of created this little grid of like, village people who knew each other and joked that one guy owed another one rent. Uh, he was having an affair with this one. And it became this kind of attempt at empathy. Um, and I thought about making skulls with little personality traits or actions under them. And then I just kind of put it in my back pocket. I didn't think about it for 25 years. But I was, in the, I was stuck in post-production, which was really depressing because I was just waiting for phone calls and not doing anything with my day. Um, and I thought about that idea and, and it made, it was something I could do, I could do one or two skulls a day and by the end of that day, I had something. Um, and I, feel, I felt that it needed to be like 500 skulls in order to be a village or something approaching what they had in that church. And so it gave me a project and it was also me doing the same thing over and over and over again and trying to like scrape something new out of, uh, so I was suddenly dealing with composition. I was dealing with paint application. I was dealing with um, uh, uh, colors and, um, and, you know, and I would know what I was gonna do. Every day I'd go into the studio and I knew exactly what I was gonna do. I was gonna try to scrape another skull out of this um, project. And I showed them, they haven't actually showed in a gallery in New York, but I showed them at spring break a few years ago. And this uh, publisher came through, Chris, Christopher Trella, who had actually, um, I'd known um, for, for years. He'd, he'd followed the band and uh, he'd been an agent at CAA. And uh, he 
was like this, and they were, you know, there's a pyramid of them on the wall. And he's like, you know, these would make a great book. And I basically didn't let go um, until it was produced. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would make a great book. Sold. When? When shall we do that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it was uh, three years in the, in the making um, due to a number of, uh, you know, I found out later that making books just is going to take forever. And that's, uh, if I ever do a book again, I'll have a very different view because I kept thinking like, okay, well, I got the images. Let's get this thing done. Yeah, a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I, I wanted a gatefold, which probably added like six months to the whole process because every time something, everything's done in these things called signatures, which are like 16 pages. So you have to do it like, it's all math and I'm terrible at math. And um, if something's wrong or if you don't like the colors or something, if you don't say it, like you'd be in this thing like, I'm going to add, every time you change something, it would take a month because it would have to go back to Hong Kong and they'd have to pre reprint the whole thing and it would add money to the whole process. And so you're sitting there going like, do I live with this or do I, you know, uh, have them change it? And you only have to change a few things to add a year to the process. And, and, uh, and then Hong Kong was in political turmoil for six months and then COVID hit. So it was just like this like, constant, uh, uh, thing. And it was, it was supposed to be distributed, but then, uh, uh, DAP was pushing everything back a year. And I just couldn't at that point after, uh, so many, so long, so long working on the book. I was just like, I, I, I want the book. I, I will sell them myself. I will bike around the city, and um, uh, we'll get them into bookstores. And um, I've been working without a gallery for many years now, and I've gotten pretty good at um, selling a, about the same work a gallery ever did. Um, only now, you know, getting a hundred percent. And that's been a same with the book. I mean, the book is recoupable, so I'm not going to see any money for a while. But, um, but I'd rather, you know, I, I, I maybe I'm a control freak. Because um, if I am, I'm not a very good one. But uh, just, I, I'd rather be involved in all that and yeah. know that they're not going to end up in a remaindered bin someplace. Or I just don't want them all in my basement. Right. Right. That's, um, it's such a, it's funny how weird the, the art slash gallery world is about that whole, like selling work out of your own studio and like, you know, and there's such a default to like, Oh, just let the gallery, you just let galleries handle the business side of things. Totally. And like the artist doesn't have to know anything. They just wander around aimlessly like what's happening, you know? And, um, so you took charge of that process. I mean, have you found it? I mean, it, is it working out? You know what I mean? As far as like getting the work out there? There's, um, you know, there's definitely drawbacks. Certain people won't buy out of your studio. Um, uh, I am working with an LA gallery, Charlie James. So um, I do have an ability to kind to at least know, like the, the big issue is, you know, uh, and this happens in galleries too. The galleries have their certain collectors. Um, but you want to trying to cast a broad net 
and trying to get out there um, outside of your small world is harder as an artist, especially as a 50-year-old artist with two kids. Um, you can't do all the socializing. You can't do, uh, and, and most of my socializing was always drunk and, you know, like, let's do this thing that, you know, maybe might come to fruition or whatever, and I can't live that way anymore. Um, but, uh, but I found that I, I like it, and I've always been a problem for the art world because they don't know what to do with the band, they don't know what to do with sitcoms, they don't, uh, a lot of my work deals with humor, and humor doesn't have a great deal of standing in contemporary art. Uh, or some, some, some people have been, managed to pull it off, but, uh, and I've always been drawn to like the popular arts in a, in a, in a way. I, you know, one of the things that, and this sounds really pretentious, but I, I grew up at, you know, my parents, my dad taught at Colombian. you know, Edward Said was my next door neighbor. His kids were like my play friends. And uh, there were all these like, I was around a lot of like highfalutin thinking as a kid. And one thing that I learned was how to kind of like how to discount pretension, right? I don't, uh, like I, I can recognize when someone's bullshitting. Um, I can, like when I stop understanding what they're getting at or, and, and I, I got this real kind of animosity towards pretension. And um, so I started gravitating kind of towards the interesting things to me in comedy, the interesting things to me in, in music. Uh, I, you know, I went, to, uh, I went to school as an illustrator, actually. I wasn't even sure I wanted to go into contemporary art. Uh, and um, so I find that I'm able to kind of find those people who are interested in this stuff. Um, and I do have support in the art world, and I, I have a, a great collectors and uh, who come back to me, and and uh, and I've been really lucky in, in getting great like um, re like reviews on my work and stuff. Uh, but sales have always been a battle, and I'm I find that I'm in a better position to sell my work than most galleries who are used to selling a different kind of work. Yeah. Um, Isn't it funny how um, difficult galleries, it, it, I, maybe it's just because it's been so ingrained into the way things, I feel like the art works has like, the art world has lanes that they just travel in yeah. those lanes. You yeah. know what I mean? And that idea that, you know, oh, paintings are easy to sell, sculptures a little harder, photo, well, you can, you could sell it and performance, what are we going to do with it? Yeah. Any digital tech work? What? what how do we yeah 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 totally. we don't even know how to catalog it or like you know it, i mean i'm being extreme but it you know it takes them a long time to sort of like get with the you know changes or to adapt to any kind of change in a way yeah and uh if you're like an artist who's floating in between areas and they don't know how to like just define you and pigeonhole you in a way then it make for them that it just seems like it, it's so difficult for them to really like push you or to stand behind that work because yeah but the whole idea of of art and galleries is like to push this you know an avant-garde like pushing the boundaries and like you know opening things up to expression in any way that it i mean that's an idealistic view of it but really that's what a lot of i would imagine a lot of galleries um purport that their artists are trying to do is carry the conversation 
But if it doesn't fit into that box easily, that there's a real hard time with, you know, I don't want to say selling it, but selling it, like not literally selling right. it, but selling it to people, you know, that this is something that they should pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've found that they were great when I, you know, when I did the legwork and I like doing the legwork um, and could get notice, then they would, were happy to step in. Um, uh, you know, and then there's the, the, other, the other thing, which was like just getting paid by galleries. And I had a string, like I, I, Roblin Hall crashed fantastically and owed just tons of money to everybody. And um, yeah, that wasn't one of the best stories of the yeah. <laughs> closing galleries. And, uh, and I've had a surprising, uh, I, my London gallery was a, another mess that I'm still dealing with legally. Um, and so I, I'm a little shy, frankly, about getting involved with that kind of thing again, because what I, I get, like, I, I don't know about you, but like, um, when a gallery is doing work, I get very passive and, uh, I don't, I'm like, oh, great. They'll, they'll handle this thing. And I've learned not to be that way, but then I'm antagonistic to the gallery because they're like, no, no, we're dealing with this. And I'm just like, come on, let's do this. Like, you know, do you need me to call them? I'll call them. Um, uh, So, yeah. So in the end, like right now, also with, 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 with Instagram and with, you know, the way where where technology is, the, uh, uh, and, and frankly, where the cultural focus is right now, I'm not sure that galleries, again, for, for me, uh, are really um, uh, yeah w- like it, it'd be great to have someone help out but provided they're helping out you know right yeah totally I know what you're talking about too because I always feel that need to be checking it's like striking the balance between being involved and not disconnecting from the process of how your work is being sort of disseminated and you know handled in a way yeah but also not being that annoying person who's like am i getting paid or like you know like totally. hey, did you hang out did you do this did you do that? you know and that then people aren't going to want to work with you so it's really striking that balance you know yeah but it also too it's a luxury in a way like it's it's difficult but it also depends on who you work with because there's going to be some people who work with things really sort of efficiently and and on the books and they're really good about handling things and and then, you know, we've all heard the stories or have dealt with certain people who are just, you know, they the persona is that they're handling everything and behind the scenes, they're just like a mess. Totally. Yeah, I, I showed with team. I mean, like I had <laughs> just always like the word, <laughs> like I was just, I was like always picking like carefully the uh, the, the gallery that was most likely to not <laughs> fulfill their obligations. Um, right, right, but... Um, Sorry, I just had to hit the uh, fire truck. Thank you. Yeah, good, good. Um, so, yeah, but I, the, the thing about, you know, I've only met Jose a couple times, um, but he is really, um, I, I feel like he had great things to say about work and like he's really interesting, invested guy visually. Totally. And that's the other dynamic is you'll have a lot of people who have great minds and are really sort of a great eye, but maybe they're not the best at communicating or business. You know? Totally. No, <laughs> I mean, like, like I loved dynamic. hanging out with Jose. I mean, he could be very arch, but he was so smart and knew about everything. And, and we had 
totally the same interests, uh, being like film and, and music and stuff. He knows yeah. everything about music. He was a DJ at Danceteria when I was a kid. Um, and, uh, and then Christian Viveros Fonet is still a great friend of mine. He, in fact, wrote uh, uh, an essay in the book. Um, uh, and at a certain point, yeah, I was re- like, I was always looking for best friends. <laughs> like, <Yeah. you> know? <laughs> right. I had this, I guess, this totally like, you know, bohemian idea of like, yeah, we're going to take on the world. And, and, uh, <laughs> and then realized like, oh, they, maybe they, you know, maybe a business degree would have benefited them. Well, that's the, the the rub of that too. Is it is a relationship built on something that is very personal, which is this work that is an expression of your life and your creative spirit. You know what I mean? So it's an odd relationship in a way because it is um, embedded in business decisions and and you know survival in a way of being able to continue to be creative and for a, a place to continue to be able to show artists. But at the same time, it's this really personal. It's a weird marriage. Yeah, totally. I guess, like, again, not to, to beat the dead horse, but I guess it would be like Hollywood and, like, having an agent, you know, in a way that's, like... It's very much like Hollywood having an agent, only an agent takes 10%. Oh, yeah, not 50? Not 50, you know? And so it's a funny... Because I, I, I know I've had experiences with agents, and uh, and they do... They're, they're, there's they're, All those jokes about agents are the same that you could apply to gallerists. Like, you know, they, they won't make a phone call. They, they uh, Right. Uh, <laughs> they... You know, the, the, like the actors who are hot uh, or like the directors who are hot are going to get all the roles because that's who they're working for. So it's like it's the same as a gallery roster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Working like striking while the iron's hot. Yeah. Whoever is hot at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so just because you show with a great gallery doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be paying attention to you. Um, and. uh, uh and, but but it's funny because like you know I, I transpose the art world to a lot of things all the time, having had a certain amount of experience in, in a number of fields. And what I love about certain musicians was how hard headed they were about uh, getting paid. You know, like uh, classic Chuck Berry, where he'd like show up with a suitcase and wouldn't go on until there was money in it. Um, and I wish I was be I was more like that. I I I, I have confrontation issues, uh, like uh, sort of regu- re- like middle, regular middle class uh, confrontation issues. But um, uh, it has become easier for me over time, just because I've had to do it, to be straight about money and. Um, uh, and and be able to talk about it and be able to not do the thing where like people are like hey you want to do this thing and be like sure right uh, exactly or, like not get paid for everything like, <laughs> exactly. artists will do everything for the exposure exposure yeah I I tell my students all the time like you know you shouldn't be doing work for free you know what I mean like you should be compensated in some way yeah. shape or form and we're at a people, very like negotiation wise we're at an incredible disadvantage because we love what we do we're like the luckiest people on earth yeah. And I would show for free. I would do everything for like as long as like you know, my rent was paid and whatever. Right. There was food. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, so like yeah. You know, so when someone's like, "You want to do this thing?" Like the only way I'm able to negotiate is when I literally can't do something, and uh, or or at least like when I can naturally negotiate. 
Well, I just like, I can't, those are the bad dates or, um, or it doesn't seem, but if it seems fun to me and there's no money involved, it's super hard to, yeah. uh, yeah. I think it's a utopic vision, you know, of like, if it's that adage of like, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right. Well, you know, if everyone could just do that, you know what I mean? Because there are going to be some people who just love to bake. Yeah. There are going to be people who love to clean stuff. Like yeah. they just love it, you know? And like, if people could just do what they love to do, then everyone wouldn't be trying to fill the void in their life with Lamborghinis or, you know, or, you know what I mean? Or like a gigantic house that they don't need or whatever yeah. it is. Filling we just try like using shopping as like spackle for like our, you know, crappy day jobs or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, but you know, that's a whole different. <laughs> but as artists, you know, you feel that because you, it's like, you know, I, I don't need, like, I just need to be able to make work and be creative. And that for me, that's enough. Yeah. And, and, and when you meet people who have no, they don't have that in their life, they don't have a thing that they really like they wish the day was a little longer so they'd have more time to do that thing that they love to do. Right. Like they are depressed often and you feel bad that they don't have that desire. And then, you know, and then it's just like either shopping or food or whatever just to fill the void. Yeah. I've had a lot of like crappy gig jobs. And I remember one was years ago, I was like color correcting at a advertising agency where these people would just regularly pull all nighters. And we're at the at this place all the time. They were, I, I guess, they were creatives. Um, and we we were in Soho, and they would their only kind of outlet of was they would go outside and shop, and come back to the office and show everyone what they had just bought. And I remember just being like struck the sadness. <laughs> the only <laughs> the only people who are going to see this are people in the office, and they know you were here all night. And there's nothing there. It was like the most, it was like, yeah, it was like licking a wound. You know, they weren't, they weren't solving anything. They were just like kind of getting through the day by buying this beautiful pair of Marc Jacob boots. Yeah. What else can you do at that point? I guess. I guess. If you feel trapped. Yeah. It's, it's hard because a lot of times it's, it's difficult to make that decision to, you know, everyone likes to make fun of artists because, um, you know, it's like, oh, what do you really do? Right. But you know, to make that decision to to have basically no stability. I mean, there's no stability, and we're obviously we're seeing that recently. There's no real stability. You well, know that's what I mean? a, you like know, everything's. That's, I think while well, we're ahead of the game so much with like, I don't know how you handled with school, but I feel like you know, so like my oldest son just started high school, and uh, it's in Manhattan, and it's just you know, it's it's a it's not a mess, but it's they're not getting. They're not getting in school enough. They've not ordered the proper PPE for the instruments. Yeah. And other parents are just freaking out. They can't handle the lack of knowing what's going on. And mm. as an artist, I feel like I never know what's going on. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm always just like, we're going to we'll do this thing. Like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And so it's just another, it's just an extension of that where you can see that other people can't, do not like that at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a panic that, because it takes, I think, creativity to be able to adapt to that stuff or to be okay with, like, you know, um, to not having everything hyper planned out and, you know, 
And right now it's difficult because for a lot of people, I mean, it's difficult for all of us, I think, because no one knows what the future is really. Like I'm, I've got like two show, like I have things planned. They're planned, quote unquote, but who knows what's going to happen. And it's a a little bit of a, you know, there's something to be said for a false sense of security and a false sense of like stability because it is mental to a great extent. Yeah. You know, I mean, we could all just walk around saying like, well, uh, the meteor might hit tomorrow. So yeah, 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 yeah. What's society? You know, <laughs> but but we there's a usefulness to like the day to day, I guess. But um, it's it's really difficult right now because I think it's it's everything is kind of in flux, and it's I think that's why all this anxiety and you know and this sort of I don't know it's feeding something in a way, and then it's also taking away in a way. It's it, I think it's going to take us a while to to get out of the forest to see what it was like, you know, to, to totally. sort of put some perspective on it. I mean, I remember all back in 2008 when, you know, the first time uh, when I know my career took a crazy hit for a long time. Um, and, but I was still like, I'd been used to kind of scraping by. And I remember friends of mine who had had these jobs that they didn't like, um, and suddenly they didn't have, they and they were overextended because that's what you did when you had a job you didn't like. Yeah. And then they lost that job they didn't like. And we were in the same situation, only I'd been doing what I liked for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, uh, so I guess the trick is just to do what you like. Um, that's what I tell students. Yeah. I, I say, look, you you might be unemployed regardless. You might as well be unemployed doing something. Yeah. You know, you might not catch it, but you might as well chase the thing you really want to do instead of chasing something like halfway that seems more attainable that's going to not make you happy. Yeah. You know, go for it. I, I just heard, I, I was I was getting my kid a haircut and there was a guy getting a haircut next to him who was telling the barber that he had he'd studied to become a chemist because remember when you saw like a, a CVS, a Walgreens, and uh, 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 what was the other one? Dwayne Reed. Dwayne Reed on every corner, everywhere. Well, yeah. there was this sudden real need for chemists because every one of those places had to have a chemist. And so all these kids studied to become chemists and were getting paid well. And then that whole battle collapsed. And now <laughs> all these chemists are out of work, like, you know, pharmacy chemists, not like, you know, MIT chemists. Right, right. Um, are like suddenly out of work and, and you, you really don't like, was that worth it? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know playing it safe, you know, can have a cost, I guess, just like, you know, going out on a limb can. Yeah, but, totally, totally. And, I, and, and, I, and at the end of the day, I think it's going to be the person's personality that really drives them to that. You know what I mean? It's, it's like intuitive. It's like if you're the kind of person who's going to step out and try something that's not guaranteed and a little harder, it's like the same as a kid who will walk out on that ledge and take the big cliff jump into the water. You know what I yes. mean? Like some, some are like, you're not getting me anywhere near there. Yeah, Others yeah. will just run and jump. Some will think about it for two hours. It's just kind of like our personalities and how we deal with things. I won't you know? do it. <laughs> I will under certain circumstances. <laughs> I'm um, conditional. Yeah. <laughs> right, no, I, actually, I, was, I remember being in a situation where I was, I was the guy who waited and waited and waited and finally jumped and wished I hadn't. <laughs> well, halfway down? Like, I don't <laughs> know about this decision. It was more right like I, go, I went Sploosh. too deep and then my ears hurt and it was like, ah. oh. yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, but no, I, I to- yeah, I totally... Uh, 
uh, no, what you're what you're talking about because it is there's certain people you're just like, um, who could who could do who have the financial means to do it or uh, could do it and simply simply won't. Yeah, that's art in a nutshell. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, how can people get the book? What do they do? All they have to do is go to um, uh, amountainofskulls.com uh, and they can order the book. It's uh, sixty bucks. Um, uh, yeah, that's, it's it's easy easy like that. Or they go to um, I think uh, uh, a Spoonbill has copies. Uh, Mast has copies. PS One has copies. We'll find out about the Whitney this week. Um, um, and one ninety two up in nice. in Chelsea. Yeah. Last question: Do you do you have or do you plan on getting a skull tattoo for the occasion? <laughs> I think I should. I have one. <laughs> oh my god! There you go. There I didn't know done. that, by the way. That was. <laughs> you've checked that off the list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Next, you can deliver the book and become a certified tattoo artist and give the tattoo with the delivery of the book. Right, right, right. A, a mangled, fucked up, like you know. I'll just get an old guitar string and some India ink. <laughs> Prison tattoo. Do it old style. Hold on, I'm going to give you something else. Yeah, exactly. Do you book. have an hour? It could take this, a while. It'll last a long time. <laughs> here's some here's some heroin. It's going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for talking, man. It was great. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Sure thing.